And there, that's where I think partnership between international organizations is so important. And I see Dr. Ngozi in particular is, is really taking this forward with her collaboration with WIPO and the IMF and the World Bank. And ITC is doing the same with our collaboration with the ICC, with UN Global Compact, and with um, different private sector organizations. Do I feel that um, the collaboration with ITC and WTO could be stronger? Yes, I do. Um, you know, we have a proven track record of working on women's economic empowerment. We have data sets, we have um, tools, something called the SheTrace Outlet, for example, which can give you all the data and analysis that you need on the state of women in, in different countries and different economies. Use that, use that expertise um, to support the work and the discussions that are happening in the WTO. There's no need to replicate what exists in another organization, for example. So when you look at the collaboration that we're having on investment facilitation, for example, with the WTO, I mean, that's, that's, that, that to me makes a lot of sense because what we do is we bring in the voice of the private sector. And remember, you know, sometimes we are, as negotiators forget, but we are not negotiating for the sake of negotiating. Mm -hmm. We're negotiating for our business community and for our entrepreneurs who are going to use these trade rules. You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Hello and welcome to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I am Rodolfo Rivas and this is my podcast. You are in for a treat for, with this episode. My guest is Matthew Wilson, Chief Special Projects for Partnerships Relations with UN, Diversity and Inclusion at the International Trade Center, ITC. We wanted to do something special for our 40th episode and here you go. I have wanted to invite Matt, Matthew to the podcast for some time now and I am thrilled we finally made it happen. Matthew is from Barbados and a professional with over 20 years in trade and development, but that is just scratching the surface. He is a passionate advocate for equality and human rights. In his current role as Chief Special Projects, he focuses a lot of his time on diversity and inclusion at the ITC. As a commitment to diversity, he becomes my first guest from the Caribbean, and have it, having had such an insightful conversation, I truly hope he's not the last one. We cover a lot of ground, touching on photography, comics, international relations, change management, racism, trade, and everything in between. During Matthew's student days in Barbados, he was part of a talented group of students who have become great leaders across different areas and great promoters of Barbados. Then Matthew tells us about what it was working for Pascal Lamy during his tenure as Director General at the WTO and Matthew's transition to ITC as Chief of Staff to Ms. Arancha Gonzalez. Unfortunately, there were some great conversation bits that we couldn't capture with the mic, but perhaps that's an excuse to invite him back as a guest. Matthew is truly a leader in international Geneva, and I was pleased to meet him during our delightful conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Take a listen. Please let us know by liking, subscribing, and or reviewing if you enjoyed this conversation. I know I keep saying it, but it really helps. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employer. Matthew, good, 
Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for accepting my invitation. No, thank you, thank you for having me. Huh? Um, I think I'm the first Caribbean person you've had on this podcast. So I'm really happy to represent for small island developing <laughs> countries. You are the first. I must say that I had invited someone else, Janine, and we couldn't really do it. But I'm glad. Actually, I'm really happy because I was looking to invite you uh, for a long time. But since I didn't really know you, I, I didn't feel confident enough to ask you. But well, listen, for the minute I saw you posted something about comic books, which is, I think, a bit of a shared joy of yours and mine, I thought, let me reach out to this gentleman and say, if you're ever discussing comic books, call me. <laughs> and, you know, that kind of opened the door for us to do this. So I'm, I'm really happy. Um, I hope I can do this justice. Janive is brilliant. I'm sure she would have done a great job. But <laughs> that said, I'm really happy to be the first Caribbean person on this great podcast. Thank you, Matthew. Well, we can talk about comics a bit later, uh, but I'm really interested in how was life growing up in the Caribbean? Life is wonderful. Life is exactly as wonderful as you think it would be. So why would you ever want to leave? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Barbados, small country, um, 144 square uh, kilometers, um, surrounded by the most beautiful beaches. Um, you're never that far from a beach. Um, there are fruit trees all over. Um, but it's a very developed country as well. Huh? I mean, you have this mix of um, tradition and development. So it's really a wonderful place to live. Um, great opportunities. One of the most highly educated and literate countries in, the, in, the, um, in, in that hemisphere. Um, one of the highest human development indexes as well. So, you know, it's a wonderful place to work, a wonderful place to live. But, you know, there's so much out, out there to see. And, you know, I joined the Foreign Service and that was, you know, my first professional encounter. And, Part of joining the Foreign Service is about getting eventually posted overseas to be able to represent your country. And it just so happened that the first place I was posted was here in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, 20 years ago um, this year, actually. And you didn't live here. <laughs> and I haven't left here yet. <laughs> um, okay, but, but going back, like, how did you... So, at what age were you really interested in like uh, diplomacy or international relations? You know, sometimes it's only when you really sit down and look back at your, your life and your career and even your interests as a teenager that you realize that maybe some of these, some of these things are actually a little bit predestined. So I remember being at um, community college, that was um, the years 16 to 18, I believe it was. And in 1994, I remember speaking at the this UN conference that was held in Barbados on small island developing states issues. I remember going on the podium and speaking. The first time I ever publicly spoke was at a UN, a UN event. Mm -hmm. And there were a group of us there who were very kind of civic minded. We started our own NGO at school that was dealing with environmental issues and narcotics issues and youth issues. And it just so happened that the core of that little group have actually really blossomed into something pretty amazing. So you have me who entered the world of international trade and, and international relations. You had um, another colleague of mine, Santia, who is the recently appointed Deputy Prime Minister of Barbados. And you have another colleague, Lisa Cummins, who's the Minister of Tourism of Barbados. Another colleague, Kevin Hunt, who's the, um, the, the Director of International Business in Barbados. So you see that even from the ages of 16, 17, we were interested in life beyond the shores of Barbados because we knew how open an economy Barbados was and how Barbados was part of something larger than just 144 square kilometers. So we've all actually gone into this, this area of, um, of international service, to be honest. 
And um, with all of your friends who went into to have some prominent roles, like, do you sometimes go back and think like, do you remember when we were kids and we were, did you ever imagine that we were be doing what we're doing now? You know, when I see them sometimes, um, the, the amount of pride that I feel is really quite overwhelming because um, I see them giving service to their country and I think they feel the same way about me. So whenever we see each other, there's this shared recognition, this shared appreciation. It's, it's really quite a beautiful thing actually. Yeah, that's amazing. Usually, um, when you have like a close network and in Barbados or your term, maybe because it's a small country, you had like concentration of talent like in small groups. That's pretty rare. Yeah, no, I think, you know, a lot of it also had to do with, um, you know, some of the studies we were doing. Now, all of us did history. But this was a special kind of history that we did in, in, in Barbados at this time. This was history under a very specific teacher called Trevor Marshall who didn't teach us about um, you know, British history or American history. He taught us about African history and he taught us about the emancipation of slavery. He taught us about colonialism. He taught us about the history of our islands before we were colonized. So he also gave us a sense of ownership of our history, interests, in the development of our countries and a real passion for representing what it was we were trying to do in the Caribbean. And I can see like a trend from there and to the work that you're doing now. Yeah, I mean completely. I mean it, it really, you know, it has really been one of the greatest honors representing my country here in the WTO negotiations or in the Human Rights Council or at the International Labour Organization discussions. Uh, because you're a small country, um, 265, 270,000 people, but with a big voice and with a voice that says, I know I'm small, but I have something to say. I have something to offer. Um, I have a contribution to make to the global commons, to the global thinking. Um, it's a country that understands the importance of multilateralism understands the importance of institutions like the WTO, where, at least in theory, one country, one vote, um, we all sit around the table, and you have equal participation or equal opportunity to participate. And for small countries, I can't tell you how important it is to have multilateral frameworks like the WTO, where you are able to discuss these issues with like-minded states um, and to be able to put your concerns on the table in a multilateral forum. Um, there is really no, um, there's no substitute for what platforms like the WTO multilateral trading system offer to small states like Barbados and those in the Caribbean and the Pacific and, and in Africa as well, to be honest. And you said that your first assignment was uh, here to Geneva. How was it to come here to Geneva as your first assignment? Well, I mean, I'll be honest, it wasn't great. Um, you know, I was, <laughs> I was 26. I had an idea of Europe, which was maybe a little bit more cosmopolitan. Okay. I arrived here on a gloomy Sunday. Uh, and I remember sitting by the lake with my deputy permanent representative at the time, eating a very cold cheese quiche and thinking <laughs> to myself, what have I done? Is this, is this where I have position myself. It's what, the opposite of Barbados. It was the opposite. It was the opposite, you know, and, but I have to tell you that 
you really do learn to love Geneva and all that it offers. Um, not just the incredible beauty, which is all around you, um, which is also reminiscent of Barbados. I mean, L Lake Geneva or Lat Lama is, is a lake, but sometimes it can feel and look like an ocean. So having that body of water close by is also something that I think all of us um, from the islands also really appreciate. Um, I love the diversity that exists in Geneva, especially today. I mean, you walk into Geneva and you see people from all over the world. You hear accents from all over the world. You see shops selling food from all over the world. And that sense of diversity and inclusion and excitement that you feel here is something that I, I don't take for granted. And then, of course, if you're interested in international trade and international relations, there are few places which are um, as incredible as International Geneva that give you exposure to the kinds of thinking, the kinds of thought leadership, the kinds of research, the kinds of information sharing and knowledge that you get here is really quite unparalleled. Uh, so, you know, it's a place that I've, I've settled in. Um, I had multiple jobs here. You know, you know, after I left the embassy, I actually worked at the WTO, both in the Development Division Secretariat and then in the Cabinet of Director General Pascal Lamy before going over to International Trade Center with, um, with Arancha Gonzalez. And so it's been a fascinating series of professional encounters as well. And when you were at the mission, um, you were doing, because you mentioned that you also worked at the Human Rights Council. So this was not exclusively with trade. You were working on different topics. When you're a small mission, um, you better be prepared to be doing a little bit of everything, which actually turned out for the best because you know this world is not demarcated into trade, human rights, labor, environment, intellectual property, health. The reality is not that. Um, the reality is, is that there is this incredible interconnectedness of all of these issues. And actually when you're from a small delegation and you're forced to cover all of these issues, you're also forced to see the relationship between these issues. You're forced to um, take decisions in one arena that you know are going to impact on your decisions in another arena. And I think that that's a very positive way to actually approach international decision making, where you're cognizant of the linkages um, with other areas. So you don't just look at trade as a, as in, in, a, in a silo, you understand that there's trade and trade and health, trade and environment, trade and labor, trade and human rights. And so you're really able to, I think, make a lot more um, intellectual, um, rather intelligent decisions because of that. Yes, I, I've also experienced that within the WTO because we're a small mission also. And I get to work on different topics where I see bigger missions, they have one delegate dealing with TVT alone, uh, mm. but not anything else. So you will go from TVT to IP, but for you it was even broader. And I think this is important because, as you say, sometimes the interconnectedness of the topics enriches the discussion. But I think this is something that's lost here in Geneva. I think it's changing a little bit because, you know, say 20 years ago, I never would have thought that we would be discussing um, uh, gender in the WTO. I never thought that we would be talking about small businesses in the WTO. I never thought that we would be discussing issues to do with climate change in the WTO. So you do see that things are moving in the right direction to understand that if you're really going to address a problem, if you're really going to be solution oriented in a way that you find sustainable solutions, you need to understand the interlinkages between issues. So I do, I do see things going in the right direction in WTO, even though I know that there's some people who complain and say, I'm sorry, but WTO is a 
trick rule making organization and that's what they should stick to but i think it's healthy that wto is having discussions and debates and um, thought leadership and brainstorming on all of these issues which are really facing our countries every single day i think is a very healthy thing and i'm also curious about the transition from working from a mission to working to a wto is there like a mind uh, change like when you go from one to another how does it work oh there's a huge there's a, <laughs> there's a huge change um i mean i don't i don't want to go into details but there were some parts of it which were a little bit um a little bit challenging for me because you you move from being um sitting in a seat of a member where you have a say this is a member driven organization you know where where you're listened to Um, no matter how small you are, where you're contributing to processes, to then all of a sudden being in a secretariat where you, in a way, are a little bit more constrained in how far and how deep you can go and in terms of what you should say and where you should say it. So it was a bit of a culture shift for me to move from having a great degree of flexibility because I worked under a fantastic ambassador, Trevor Clark, Huh? Um, who frankly gave me such incredible support and flexibility to craft my own work program. Um, he's somebody who understood that when his team shines, he shines, which is a very mature way to approach management, I must say. Um, to them being in a much more hierarchical um, situation in the WTO Secretariat. But, you know, I mean, they're trade-offs that you make. And I mean, since you were here at the WTO from a, some time ago, you've managed to see the, the shift in the WTO or its evolution. Can you say anything about how you've seen it like change throughout the years when you started, when you were like in the WTO and now? Mm -hmm. Perhaps now you're not looking at it directly, but from... I mean, I think um, the WTO has, has stopped navel gazing as much as it probably did 20 years ago. Um, and recognize that it has to be part of the international discourse, um, that it has to also continue to promote why it is relevant, which means that you need to reach out to not just the trade community, but you need to reach out to people in countries who are directly and indirectly affected by trade. Um, I think the WTO has a great responsibility to assist member states in putting forward the ideas and in communicating the benefits of trade. Uh, so I think it has turned into an organization which is a lot more outward looking, which I think is positive. Uh, even something as simple as the WTO Open Days, which I believe started about 15 years ago or so, that whole idea of inviting people in, non-trade negotiators into the WTO to get a better sense of how the WTO functions and why it does what it does, I think is really important. Um, you know, working directly with, with Pascal Lamy was also an amazing experience because he is somebody who understood uh, why the WTO needed to move outside of its very strict rulemaking. He understood that you needed to look at the Internet of Things, for example. You needed to look at value chains and the WTO needed to be in these discussions. And I'm really actually quite happy to see the current um, Director General, Dr. Ngozi, carry on that, um, that perspective, which I think was very much piloted by Mr. Lamy, which is trade 
is involved in almost every single socio-economic political activity. Therefore, the WTO also has to have a role in these elements as well, whether or not it's in the SDGs or is in looking at um, um, access to vaccines or is looking at trade and health or is looking at how to rebuild economies after they've been devastated by um, by climate climate change and, and natural disasters. So that for me has been one of the biggest trends that I've, I've seen and is a welcome trend. But it's also an organization that is very traditional. And I think that that's something also that we've seen that uh, there is change coming from outside, inside, but inside it's difficult to change it. I mean, change, is, change can be very uncomfortable for people. And I think that's, that's, that's a natural reaction. So that's why a process of change, the process of how you bring change is almost as important as the change itself. You need to bring people along with you. You need to clearly explain why it is you're doing what you're doing and what the implications are and be honest and transparent if there are going to be some negative externalities as well. So for me, change management is all about transparency, bringing people along and being honest and open about the, about the implications. You cannot impose change on people and expect them not to react negatively. Um, you need to bring them along with you. You were also talking about how trade touches pretty much every aspect of life, individually and collectively. And it's true, but when I started working with trade like 10 years ago, like no one really talked about trade. Like I remember I set up a Google alert to get like notifications for WTO was mentioned in the news. I rarely got them. And then I had to shut it off because like I got so many. And now everyone talks about trade. It's in the newspapers. I go to a dinner party. Everyone is like, ah, trade. And everyone has an opinion on trade. What do you think was the catalyst for that change? Or, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not looking at right. Do you, did you see that? People have always been talking about trade. They just didn't use the word trade. Every time somebody talked about employment or job creation or technology or Amazon or Apple products or intellectual property or hotels or tourism or travel, they were talking about trade. It's just maybe they didn't, they didn't use the nomenclature of trade, but that's trade. All of those things have incredible trade elements and aspects to them. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's a, a new thing. I don't think trade is now suddenly center of the agenda. I think it has always been there. It's just, you know, different terminology has, has been used, to be honest. And now I think we see more than ever before, though, the link between what happens at the local level and what happens at the global level. And that's something which I feel um, technology and access to information has also helped to um, give people a, a more realistic view of this relationship between what is local, what is regional and what is global. Actually, that's a great perspective, which I had never thought about it. But you're right, because everyone talks about trade from their own perspective and how they see it. And it affects everyone in mm -hmm. different way. But also in that regards, I think that the WTO is more immersed in that discussion where it, it didn't seem to be that much before. You know, um, sometimes they say when someone's not talking about you, that's when you should start to worry because then you're, you might be obsolete. <laughs> so I, I think it's actually a healthy thing that the WTO is still very much on the lips of many people and many administrations, even if they may not be saying the most wonderful things. The fact of the matter is, is that it still 
retains its relevance and that for me is important that people are having a discussion about where the WTO fits in the 21st century that they're having a discussion about regional rules versus multilateral rules that they're having a discussion about the DSB I think these are positive things I would be more worried if the WTO had fallen so far off of the radar that you got no Google alerts at all and what about um, I think that I think it was Pascal Ami who created the initiative of the open the public forum. I think that it's a really good initiative that made the WTO like uh, in reach for anyone because I think that for a long time it just felt like the WTO is in Geneva in a bubble and we cannot really have any access to it. So, like, how was that? How have you been seeing that process? Because maybe you were involved in. In this at the beginning. Mm. No, I, I completely agree with you. I think that the public forum was a stroke of genius. I think it did exist in some form in the past, but I think it was under Mr. Lamy that he really um, kind of uh, heightened the awareness of this and really sought to include NGOs and business organizations and the private sector and academics into this, this discussion around trade. And not just the public forum, the A for Trade initiative yeah. was also a really smart way to bring non-trade actors or traditionally non-trade actors into the trade discussion. I mean, the A for Trade initiative was the first time that you really saw trade practitioners and development practitioners around the table um, kind of going in the same direction. And I think that people underestimate how novel that was at the time. So the mere fact that you can have at the WTO Public Forum, you know, panels where you have, you know, you can have fisher folk, you can have somebody from WWF or somebody from Pew, you can have a trade, a trade negotiator, agriculture negotiator, an environmental negotiator, all they're talking about fishery subsidies, maybe not all feeling the same way or having the same perspective, but having an open debate and discussion is such a healthy thing. And also another aspect I think is the transparency to the external world. Because I remember I was involved in a couple of DG selection processes and everything happened here. And in the last one, like you could see on YouTube like a video with an interview of the candidates, which was like I unthinkable, I think, a few years back. No, I, th I mean, I think we as citizens of the world are demanding more transparency um, of processes. Um, I think small countries in particular who may sometimes feel that they don't have access to the rooms or the spaces where these things are being discussed um, are demanding um, a little bit more accountability as well. And I think it's a very positive thing um, that you put as much as you can, and I say as much as you can because there are some things which will have to remain confidential and I think that that's fine, as much as you can out there to make people feel part of the process, to make people feel part of the decision-making, to make people feel that the WTO is their organization rather than someone else's organization. So again, I think it's going in the right direction. And I, so then after this, you went to ITC. Uh, I must say that since I'm like deep into the WTO, I don't really know much about ITC and I apologize for that. Mm. <laughs> But maybe can you, Tell us a bit about ITC, the, the work that they do. Well, the first assignment I will give you after this podcast is <laughs> to delve into ITC. I think you will be fascinated by what you see because there you will see a lot of the discussions that you have here at the WTO 
turned into something a little bit more realistic on the ground. Um, so ITC is a joint agency of the United Nations of the WTO, or the GATT at the time, because we're, we're almost 65 years old, actually. Um, and our focus is really um, turning the trade discussions here into making trade actually happen on the ground. So we're a very practical agency, um, focused on working with the private sector, especially micro, small and medium-sized enterprises, and helping them to build their competitiveness and, and really benefit from, from what trade has to offer. But within that, you know, we look at everything from women's economic empowerment. We have an incredible program called She Trades, um, which is, has already brought 3 million women to market, um, helping them to trade and helping them to grow through trade. We have work that we do with um, refugee communities. We have work that we do with youth. We work on services. We've been supporting investment facilitation discussions here. We have a huge trade facilitation program that help to help countries to implement and operationalize the TFA. Um, we have an incredible slate of um, projects on agriculture value chains through our Alliances for Action work. Um, quite a lot of things that we do there, very, very practical things. So um, I would say, take a look and you'll be really surprised, pleasantly surprised by what you see. Yeah, I feel really bad about that. Like in my office, we have basically two kinds of functions. We have uh, the policy, which deals with the WTO and negotiations and disputes and all of this. And we also have another uh, part that deals with export promotion. I think that that part has been in charge of some projects and has worked uh, closely with ITC. But like even in a small mission, sometimes the communication is not as, mm -hmm. as good. But I think my colleagues are, based on what you're saying and what I know, I think that that's more something that has ha happened in the trade promotion side for us. Yeah, no, no you're, you're, you're correct. Although increasingly ITC has been very much involved in WTO issues. I mean, it was ITC who very much piloted the Buenos Aires Declaration on Women in Trade um, a couple years ago at um, MC11, I think it was. Uh, um, it was very much ITC who had pushed that. I mean, like I said, we're doing a lot of work with, with teams and with countries, getting them familiar with in the investment facilitation negotiations. And um, so a lot, we, we do quite a lot with um, developing countries here. And we have quite a lot of support, financial support from many funders who are, who also see us as an important part of delivering on the multilateral trading system. Right now at the WTO, there's some discussion about um, making the organization work better because there, and some of the conclusions were that there were perhaps duplication of, of work doing inside the organization. This, I think, that might be even more from one organization to another. How, since you've been in a couple of organizations, how do you, do you view the collaboration between organizations to actually do it in an efficient manner without duplication? Yes, this is, <laughs> this, this, this is a really interesting question because I think it's something that we're all facing as international organizations. This issue of mission creep, you know, our, are, are other organizations doing what you as an organization has been mandated to do? Are you both doing the same things but at cross purposes? Um, the fact of the matter is there are two things we have to re remember. One, uh, we need to be efficient. Efficient in terms of the money that we spend to do certain interventions and efficient in terms of how we interact with developing countries who have small administrations and who frankly are not the least bit interested in having 10 different international organizations come to them with individual work that they've done on the same topic. 
that is not economical for small, small delegations. So my advice to international organizations is think about your end user, think about your clients. And there, that's where I think partnership between international organizations is so important. And I see Dr. Ngozi in particular is, is really taking this forward with her collaboration with WIPO and the IMF and the World Bank. And ITC is doing the same with our collaboration with the ICC, with UN Global Compact, and with um, different private sector organizations. Do I feel that um, the collaboration with ITC and WTO could be stronger? Yes, I do. Um, you know, we have a proven track record of working on women's economic empowerment. We have data sets, we have um, tools, something called the SheTrace Outlook, for example, which can give you all the data and analysis that you need on the state of women in, in different countries and different economies. Use that, use that expertise um, to support the work and the discussions that are happening in the WTO. There's no need to replicate what exists in another organization, for example. So when you look at the collaboration that we're having on investment facilitation, for example, with the WTO, I mean, that's, that's, that, that to me makes a lot of sense because what we do is we bring in the voice of the private sector. And remember, you know, sometimes we are, as negotiators forget, but we are not negotiating for the sake of negotiating. We're negotiating for our business community and for our entrepreneurs who are going to use these trade rules. So bringing the voice of the private sector in is absolutely critical, and that's what ITC does. So I think that there is quite a bit more that, that I believe we could do with the, with the WTO that would add value to both of our work programs, but importantly, add value to the end users, which are the member states. That is something really important that you mentioned because I've seen it in my experience and I've heard it from my colleagues, that sometimes hearing from the private sector is difficult. When, when you seek inputs, from the private sector in specific negotiations, sometimes they're not aware about what they even want or what could be good for them. So there's a gap between that and then sometimes the, the ministries have to come up with the policies or the, the positions that they think might be good, but without that. How, how can we approach that so that there's a more effective communication between the private sector and the ministries? I mean, you know, I take, and let, let me take my, my country Barbados as an example. Uh, many, many years ago, a, a Barbados private sector trade team was created. And this was supposed to work with the Chamber of Commerce, with the different trade promotion organizations in Barbados, uh, to be able to be a bit of a, uh, a connector between the policy at the governmental level and the priorities at the business level. So I think it's really important to find a process that connects those two arms. They're not, it's not gonna happen automatically. You need to engineer it. So that's the most important thing. Governments, I think, need to invest in some kind of connectivity tissue to make that flow actually, actually work. The second thing is we, member states, need to be better at translating what it is that you're discussing at the regional and global level into a language that makes sense for the private sector on the ground. We shouldn't expect that it is the role of the private sector to figure out what it is you're negotiating up here. You need to find a way as a member state to translate this into language 
that your private sector understands in real terms on the ground. That's the only way you're going to get them to participate and the only way that you're going to get buy-in as well. So that's really important. And use international organizations like ITC who have a core mandate to bring in the voice of the private sector. We have 65 years of proven expertise of being able to gather the private sector views and be able to translate it in, in a way that makes sense to them and then transfer this knowledge to, to member states and policymakers. So this is something that we are quite adept at doing. Uh, we did it in the trade facilitation negotiations, for example. And like I said, we're doing it with investment facilitation now. We did it in the African context with the um, CFTA. Um, so, I mean, we, we have the expertise to be able to support you to do this as well. There's also something that I, you didn't mention, but I was curious to hear your thoughts, because there's also a level of distrust of the government. I don't know if this has something to do. And another aspect is that sometimes the private sector comes up with their own solutions. They have an issue, they come up with their solution, it's like, yes, we have this problem, but we can address it to this, and this is how we do it. So perhaps they don't see the need, plus the distrust. Is this something that brings a bell? Yeah, but I mean, it's also how you use that. I mean, um, the most beautiful thing is if your private sector comes up with their own solution to a problem, because then that is a, a solution that you as a trade negotiator can use. That could be something that's scalable. So if the private sector in Barbados comes up with a, a way to address a non-tariff measure, for example, that's something that could be scalable in the whole of the Caribbean. So I think governments also need to be um, confident enough to be able to harness some of these solutions that the private sector themselves may come up with. So don't always, don't see the private sector as an enemy. Don't see them as opposing you for the sake of opposing you. See how you can work together and come up with joint solutions that work for your particular economy and see how, how scalable it will be. Because sometimes you have situations where a member state is negotiating something up here and they're quite um, conservative about it. Are you going to speak to their private sector and they think, and the private sector says, but this is exactly what we want. We don't know why the government is being so conservative on this. Um, this is what we want. Now, granted, the, we, both you and I know that negotiations are not always just about that particular article you have on the table. They're, they could be related to a number of other strategic issues and the private sector may not be privy to this. But it's really important, though, that as a member state, you're not up here opposing something which your private sector has said, we need this to be able to operate more efficiently. There, there has to be a greater effort to, um, to address that disconnect. So I think mistrust, um, you know, there's nothing that breeds mistrust more than lack of transparency. So I am a big believer in if you increase and enhance transparency, you will be able to um, deal with that trust deficit. Um, now you also have a new role about uh, uh, working with a couple of initiatives, which you were telling me before, but I'm curious to hear a bit more about it. Mm -hmm. So after seven years of being Chief of Staff at ITC, um, to Arantxa Gonzalez and then to Pamela Kirk Hamilton, it was time to move on. <laughs> I think it's always healthy to move on from that position. Um, and I've taken on a new role where I'm focusing on um, supporting the organization to build partnerships because we are not going to be able to achieve the sustainable development goals. We are not going to be able to address some of the major global issues we have to do with hunger, to do with vaccine inequality, to do with climate change, unless we do it in partnership, in partnership with each other and in partnership with the private sector and with foundations and academia. So it's about really helping ITC to re-energize that really important part of our portfolio. 
But another aspect of my work which I'm really excited about and quite passionate about is on diversity and inclusion. Uh, we have realized that um, teams and organizations that work better are those that embrace diversity. We as international organizations have to look a bit more like our membership, like those that we are serving. We need to find ways to embrace and attract new voices and different voices and different perspectives. And I'm really excited that ITC is really at the forefront of this. We have a diversity and inclusion team at ITC that includes a focal point on gender, a focal point on persons with disabilities, an LGBTQI focal point, and a focal point on geographic and racial diversity. I think we're one of the first organizations to, to do this kind of, um, this kind of uh, configuration. And we have not just been doing training, but we've been doing discussions with staff, you know, making them feel comfortable, letting them know it's a safe space to discuss very sensitive issues like racism in the workplace. Let's not, let's not kid ourselves, these things happen. Huh? Microaggressions is, is a very real thing. I can tell you that for a fact. Um, you know, harassment is a real thing. Uh, so I'm really happy that ITC has embraced this and that we are actually investing in people and processes to make ITC a safe space to, to work and a safe space to prosper. And I've also been recently appointed to the um, UN Geneva Working Group on Racism in the Workplace, where 10 of us are working to support the UN Director General here in Geneva uh, better implement the master plan of the UNSG on making the UN itself a place that really respects its mandate, which is equality, non-judgment, and embracing diversity and inclusion. So coming from a very small country, um, this is really a very important portfolio for me. And I think that it also benefits from, from your experience because you've seen, I think it seems like the perfect role for you at this time in your professional career because you've gone through the, your government, the WTO, ITC, and you've seen this from different angles. Like how, what, some, what are some of the lessons that you've learned like professionally that are helping you now in this role? Mm -hmm. Well, you're correct. I mean, listen, I've been many firsts. I was the first Barbadian staff member of the WTO. I was the first Caribbean person in a WTO cabinet. I was the first ever chief of staff at the ITC. So I know what it's like to be the first and the responsibility that you have to create a pathway for those who are coming after you and how important mentorship is as well. That's a huge issue, that's a huge issue for me because um, I always remember this phrase, be for others what you wanted people to be for you when you were younger. And that for me is really important. So, I mean, what have I learned? Like I said, I've learned the power of diversity. I've learned the power of um, creating a platform where people feel comfortable to have different voices and different opinions. And that richness leads you to an outcome and a solution which is so much more sustainable and so much more impactful. Um, I have learned the importance of making sure that everybody has a voice. And I have also learned the importance of looking at processes, 
So we need to address things like unconscious bias, including in how we recruit people in international organizations. Um, we need to ask ourselves these hard questions, um, whether or not we are always looking for people who look like us, or who talk like us, or who went to the same schools as us, you know, or who have the same social group that we do. We need to break that apart and go for people who will bring the best to the job, but importantly will bring a different dimension to the job, will bring different viewpoints to the job. I think that's really, really quite critical. And then I've also, you know, I've also faced discrimination in my career. I mean, let me be honest, you know, um, I faced a little bit here at WTO. Um, I faced a little bit at ITC as well. And this is where you have got to, and I've seen it happen to other people as well. And this is where this issue of bystander syndrome comes in. Even if something isn't directly affecting you and you see something happening, which you know is not correct, you need to stand up for that person. You need to stand up for your neighbor. You need to stand up for those who may be weaker than you are um, and make sure that there's zero tolerance for any kind of discrimination. Yeah, because sometimes, like, uh, I, I think that we see in the news, like, events of discrimination or racism that are really violent, like what's happening sometimes in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we think, like, well, that doesn't happen here in Geneva because it's not as, as overt and as, like, violent as it is there, mm -hmm. but it is, it is still there. And there's still a lot of racism, perhaps in more subtle ways. And that is something that perhaps it's more difficult to address because sometimes it's unperceivable. You don't think that it's there. You know, sometimes it comes down to education. And you know, sometimes I'm willing to give people the, the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes it just comes from lack of education, lack of exposure, and a little dose of ignorance, to be honest. Uh, so, you know, when somebody would tell me, oh my gosh, your English is great. And I think to myself, my goodness, you know, that's the only language I speak in Barbados. I mean, I don't think they mean that intentionally, but I mean, really, I mean, what, what, what's the value added of saying something like that? Uh, but I don't take that as somebody being, you know, racist. I just think that someone is, you know, just maybe needs to, to think a little bit more before they say certain things. Uh, so a lot of it has to do with education, um, to, to making people feel comfortable even understanding the, all, the, the biases that they themselves may have, because we all have biases, myself included. Huh? Um, and I think it's really important that we confront them, that we pick them apart, and that we make a, a very dedicated, deliberate um, effort to do better and be better. That's also something that I've seen in your career, that you, you work a lot, but you also try to keep studying like throughout your your professional life how do you first like what drives you to do this and how do you find the time to balance both mm -hmm. i mean i i think that having the privilege to continue to learn is something that i never take for granted and i don't think any of us should take for granted um, at our fingertips we have a huge ecosystem of new ideas, new ways of looking at the world, new experiences, and I think that we need to take advantage of it. Um, so this whole idea of continuing to learn, continuing to stay ahead of the game, I think is really important from a career perspective and from a personal perspective as well. And how do I find the time? I think um, 
I just read less comic books <laughs> and I watch less movies and I just, you know, try to carve out a bit of time to do a bit of extra studying. Um, now, let me be honest with you, I, you know, one of the things that I absolutely love to do is to read the newspaper, a physical newspaper. I mean, I sit down on Sunday with um, the week's worth of the New York Times and I just sit down and I read with my cup of coffee and I cannot tell you how happy I am because you're learning everything that you're taking in, you're learning. Um, I have this, this obsession with lists. So every day I write down something new that I've learned. It could be a new word that I've never heard of before, or it could be a statistic, or it could be a piece of history. But just the fact that we are blessed enough to have access to all of this information around us, it would be a real tragedy not to take advantage of it. I... I think because also people tell me like how do you find the time to do all the things that I do which I don't even think that I'm doing as much as you are but in my experience I've seen that the more that you do you become better at being efficient with your time and sometimes it's perhaps like it's a bit uh, weird but that that seems to be the case for me like you find more time you find more ways to deal with it and how to fit it in your agenda I agree with you 100% it really is about how you plan, um, your level of efficiencies. But as you kind of intimated just now, if you enjoy doing something, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like you're giving up something to do it. It just becomes part, it becomes habit forming. And you know, life, a good life at least, is really about having a series of really good habits. Like, okay, let me go back to, to Pascal Lamy, for example. I mean, when I would go on my official missions with him, he would go running every morning. It didn't matter where he was. He would be there running. That was part of his habit. And that set him up for the rest of the day. And believe me, nobody was busier than him, but he found time to do something which not just gave him joy, but also enhanced his productivity. Um, now, I'm not going running anywhere. That's not, that's not really <laughs> my thing. Um, but you know, I find my little times to do little things as well, which give you joy. Um, but also help to spark your productivity. Take music, for example. There's nothing that can change your mood more than listening to a great sound. Uh, and sometimes that is a way that I energize myself. I get my, my headphones on and I put on a great sound. You know, a little bit of Stevie Wonder, a little bit of Marvin Gaye, uh, yeah, a little bit of Mariah Carey, you know, <laughs> whatever it is you need at that time, you know, and you'll be surprised at what that can do for you. Um, so I'm all about trying to find those mechanisms in life which give you that joy and give you that energy and then it doesn't feel like you are you know having to carve out time in your day to do them it just becomes part of your habit yes and uh, I think that sometimes when you do those things it sparks creativity and you can bring it to like talking about comics which I'm curious to hear because I love comics but whenever I I don't really publicize it Now a bit more, people know I love them, but I don't publicize it because there's a bit of stigma to it. Like people think that comics are just for teenagers. And like, I mean, I, I'm not saying that I found the solution to the stalemate of the appellate body in a comic, but sometimes like, it just like brings new ideas and I just enjoy them. I would have to shake your hand there. And I'll tell you this, the older I get, the less apologetic I am about yes. the things that I, I like. That, that, that's something that is completely true. Yeah. Like, uh, you don't have to give explanations. You just, if you love comics, I love them. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I mean, listen, when I was a teenager, I loved comics. I love, I love the same music I liked as a teenager I like now. 
the same movies I liked when I was growing up, I would rewatch now. Um, I make no apologies anymore. And I agree with you. You can find moments of inspiration in anything. And when I was growing up as a, a teenager or a preteen reading X-Men comics, X-Men comics teaches you about how to navigate in a world where sometimes you feel different. Yeah. Um, it teaches you how to build a family that may not be your blood family. It teaches you about collaboration and cooperation and sacrifice. These are things I learned from these comics growing up, things I take with me today. Um, so I believe that you can pull something, learn something, gain something from any medium that you commit to. It's true. Uh, and I, I usually try to pass that along to younger generations because I, at one stage in my career, I was afraid to be public with some of these things. Uh, something that I found, because I have a wide a range of interests, and I was told, or I thought that that was the situation, that if you want to succeed, like for example in the WTO, you have to be 100% about trade, and you cannot have like any external influences. But I don't believe that anymore. I think that you can have many interests because you're a human being. I can't think of anybody more boring than a person that's 100% <laughs> trade. Seriously. But when, I was, when, but when I started at the WTO, I would sit in these lunches and everyone was talking about trade and I thought it was a bit weird because I'm like, can we talk about comics? I don't think people, I think, I think that's unfortunate and I hope that that's changing because again, trade is not this um, mystical, element floating in the air. Trade is reality. Trade is job creation. Trade is intellectual property. Trade is services. I do not see how you can be an effective trade negotiator. Now, mind you, the theory is important. The background is important. The text is important. But connecting this Leverage, hooking this onto the reality of life, the, the act of trade, I think is much more important than being able to, um, to cite all of the, um, the Marrakesh agreements, you know, <laughs> from one to a hundred. I'm curious, do you, because uh, Hamilton, do you like the, the musical that Hamilton came from the Caribbean? I haven't seen Hamilton, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have not seen Hamilton, but I've heard only wonderful things. Yes, about I, I love it. And actually, we're singing at home with my daughters like all the time. But another thing that, and with this, maybe we can conclude, because I've, I've seen that you're really active on, on LinkedIn. And I really like that. I always like find your post pretty inspirational and just uh, good content. Like, how do you see your approach to social media? And what, what's the idea behind it? I mean, for me, social media is, um, of course, is a way to project a part of yourself out there. Um, and I, I think you do have to manage the content that you put out there. But I think that that content has to be authentic. Um, so, I mean, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and a lot of my content actually is about, you know, I love taking photographs. I love, I, I get a real buzz out of taking photographs and I think I found a kind of hidden skill that I didn't know I, I had in, in taking photographs and people's reaction to them. So a lot of my social media is about showcasing beauty, showcasing my experiences, um, giving a background to certain things that I see and, and people seem to enjoy that and I enjoy, I enjoy sharing that. 
I don't use social media to be angry and to argue and because, you know, believe me, there's nothing that lasts longer than a screen grab. <laughs> so, and this is what unfortunately I think some people don't quite always understand. So I am, I would say that my social media content is authentically curated. So there's nothing in there that's not true, but you don't have the full picture. And for me, LinkedIn is about making professional connections, but it's about understanding the people behind these professional connections. So I want when somebody comes and looks at my LinkedIn that they, they, they can see what schools I went to and what degrees I have, but that I'm also a person that enjoys photography, that I'm a person that enjoys speaking to students, that I'm a person that is um, quite passionate about diversity and inclusion, um, that I'm a person who enjoys writing short stories because Nowadays, I think employers are not just looking for somebody who have three degrees. They're looking for a more rounded individual who can bring a more rounded perspective to the workplace. And I think it's important that your LinkedIn also reflects that about you. Yeah. Well, Matthew, it has been a great pleasure talking to you. Uh, before we conclude, uh, do you have anything else to say? No, I just think, um, listen, I keep doing what you're doing because I love the fact that you are profiling international Geneva and beyond uh, at all levels, um, all people with, with different perspectives and that you're allowing them to share their journeys and their views with your viewers and your listeners. Um, I think it's really important that you're doing this and you're probably doing more of a service with this podcast than, than you think for those future generations who would be interested in this line of work especially those young men, women, and non-binary in developing countries, in Barbados, in Mexico, in Costa Rica, in Madagascar, in Rwanda, who are able to see themselves in the people and voices that you profile. And you should never underestimate the importance of that. So kudos to you. <laughs> Thank you. That, that means a lot. And actually, I hear frequently from young professionals and students who tell me like, oh, that, that episode or what I heard was great. I didn't even know it was possible. And when I hear that, like, I feel that what, that what I'm doing is in the right path. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. This was the What Alpha Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig it?